Hi, and welcome to the October EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. We have an orthopaedic theme podcast for you today. We'll be discussing navigational ultrasound imaging with Megan Lusgarten from North Carolina State University and subchondral bone remodelling with Chris Whitten from Melbourne University. Megan is a lecturer in veterinary radiology and her research interests include investigation into the potential of novel ultrasound techniques, specifically elastography and vascular imaging, to diagnose subclinical injuries and evaluate the healing process. She's first author on a paper titled Navigational Ultrasound Imaging, a novel imaging tool for aiding interventional therapies of equine musculoskeletal injuries. This can currently be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. Hi Megan, thanks for joining us today. Um, you're here to tell us about a novel imaging technique that, as far as I can understand, helps us navigate lesions found using MRI or CT in real time. Um, and this technique is currently being used in human medicine for cases such as thoracic biopsies, characterising liver lesions or performing back injections. So could you talk us through the theory behind navigational ultrasound imaging? Yes, so navigation ultrasound, like you said, is a brand new modality, um, and it allows precise correlation between a CT or MRI and real-time ultrasound. It's available on the high-end ultrasound units as a software upgrade, um, and it does require some additional hardware. So what you do is you acquire the CT or the MRI, and then you load that study into the ultrasound machine. The hardware includes a um, magnetic sensor that you apply to the transducer, the ultrasound transducer, and then a GPS-type tracking device that you place near the patient. So you determine an exact slice on that MRI that's been loaded into the ultrasound machine. And then you match that slice with the ultrasound of the patient. So you have a dual screen system of the live ultrasound with the MRI. Sound transducer, the GPS device can determine the spatial location of that ultrasound transducer. So your ultrasound is aligned with your MRI and both are moving in real time. So for instance, you can see a lesion that was diagnosed on MRI and correlated exactly with the real time ultrasound. So what are the proposed benefits of this combined modality? Well, we've found that it's really great for guiding um, interventional procedures. So for lesions of the proximal suspensory ligament, um, other lesions that are difficult to visualize with ultrasound, it really confirms um, your ultrasound findings by having that MRI adjacent to it. It also helps with determining um, the volume of treatment, um, the extent of the lesion, because as we know, sometimes uh, MRI will will show a more extensive lesion than you can appreciate with ultrasound. Uh, so the other thing that we've found it very useful for is just having that spatial um, resolution that you have with MRI compared with ultrasound. So you really can see the extent of the regional synovial structures, arteries, veins, nerves, things that you want to avoid um, when you're performing the interventional procedures. And what were your objectives for this study? So essentially, we just wanted to see if we could use it in the horse. <laughs> um, and if so, we wanted to determine how best to make it work. So how best to sync those images and 
really establish what anatomical landmarks would be best for other people to use. In people, they use external fiducial markers, so they essentially place these little BBs on the patient, and then when they go and do the fusion later, you know, reapply the BBs to the exact same site. We found that that wasn't really practical in the standing horse, especially when you're trying to maintain sterility in a procedure. Okay, so can you give us a little explanation of your study design and tell us what the inclusion criteria were for the horses enrolled in your study? So this was a prospective study we used um, for the inclusion criteria horses that had lesions with ultrasound-guided interventional procedures, so either ultrasound-guided PRP, stem cell injection, or desmoplasty. Um, in one case, we, we curated a P2 cyst. Um, overall, we had 17 horses, and several of them had multiple lesions, so we um, treated 29 lesions in this particular study. We've certainly, you know, used this much more since um, publishing this. So how did you perform the fusion imaging? Um, was the horse standing and sedated, or did it need a GA? Yeah, so the MRI was the MRI was performed under general anesthesia, and what we'll you know wake them up immediately after that. We won't um, you know take them straight to surgery or treat them the same day, and so we would do fusion the following day. In most cases, we did do it standing, and there were a few cases that did require general anesthesia. Those were desmoplasties of the proximal suspensory ligament and um, a P2 cyst curatage. Do you have to use um, high field MRI uh, for fusion imaging or can you use low field as well? Really, it's really best. The thinner the slices and the higher the resolution of the image is really the best way to go. It's very difficult to interpret um, a low field MRI and using this modality. What lesions did you end up treating using this modality and what anatomical registration landmarks did you use for the different types of lesions? So we treated lesions of the proximal suspensory ligament, the body of the suspensory ligament, the suspensory branches, the distal sysmoidian ligaments. Um, We did do a subchondral bone cyst and then the collateral ligaments of the distal interphalangeal joint. Well, um, for registration landmarks, again, we used anatomical landmarks. And so for what we found is you want to use the landmark as close to the lesion as possible. So for proximal suspensory um, ligament lesions, we would use the nutrient foramen on the back of the cannon bone. Um, and if that wasn't visible, because sometimes it's, it's too lateral to visualize with ultrasound, we would sometimes use the accessory ligament of that proximal suspensory ligament. Um, for more distal lesions, so lesions of the suspensory branches and the sesamoidian ligaments, we would use the sesamoid bone, so um, in a distinct uh, ridge within the sesamoid bones in, in transverse and then the back of the fetlock in longitudinal. And then even more distally, uh, we would use you know the condyles of P1, the distal condyles, and then the... Um, the pastern in, in longitudinal or sagittal. How long did the registration process take? So how long did it take until you were happy that alignment between the imaging modality uh, images was sufficiently accurate? So we did practice on some cadavers first before we got comfortable with it. But um, once we got comfortable doing it on patients, it really took 
maybe a maximum of five minutes. Now it's taking us about two minutes to do the actual registration process. So it really hasn't um, added a significant time to any of these procedures. Okay. And if horses are standing and sedated, um, do you find that movement increases the time dramatically? Yeah. So any movement, because of the orientation, the the patient has to be um, maintain the same distance from that GPS tracking. Any move, motion or waving or wobbliness at all requires a re-registration. So you essentially have to start over if that happens. Okay. So how did you grade the success of this study? Well, we just extrapolated that from a paper looking at uh, liver lesions in people. And for success, it was basically was the registration process appropriate? You know, were we successful in that? Was it well aligned? And were we able to complete um, the desired procedure? So in that regard, everything was a success. We also graded um, the usefulness of the modality. So we sort of graded each procedure as one to four, where one was incredibly useful. The lesion was really inconspicuous on ultrasound, but because we had the MRI um, right next to it, really greatly aided visualization and and treatment um, all the way up to four where it was of no use. But we found that every time um, we at least learned something about, you know, the difference in lesion appearance between the modalities or it did, if nothing else, um, really increase our confidence for um, addressing those lesions. So what lesions did you find that this was most helpful in treating? So obviously that proximal suspensory ligament, <laughs> everyone's uh, bane, but yeah, the proximal suspensory ligament definitely. Um, and you know, sometimes there, there were some lesions of the uh, distal oblique sesamoidian ligaments that could be a bit um, inconspicuous. So those two were probably the other, um, the best ones to be treated for, but on other lesions as well. So again, just knowing the extent better, it's so much more apparent on MRI, the extent of the lesion uh, compared with ultrasound. So we did find that helpful. And then also confirming treatment was really valuable too, because you have, you know, some gas from the PRP or the stem cells, and you can really track and make sure that you've addressed the entire lesion. Um, so we we really like it for that too. So did you do a repeat examination using this modality again? Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. So do you think this is going to be a popular technique um, in future in in widespread hospitals? Or I do. The only downside, of course, is you know you, you have to have an MRI, so that's um, more of a specialty practice. And then also, it, can, it right now the um, software is quite expensive, so. Um, Certainly, referral hospitals and you know specialty practices. I think it it's very useful, um, and people are really going to enjoy using it. Okay, and what's the next investigation in the future for this modality? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I we have really been intrigued at just one comparing the appearance of lesions between modalities and also determining the vascularity of these lesions between modalities, and then the vascularity of normal structures, um, you know, that aren't necessarily apparent on MRI, but are apparent on ultrasound. Um, We also have found it as a really good teaching 
just kind of demonstrating the limitations of each modality. So for instance, mineralization in tendons is not always apparent on MRI, but, and that's something that you would need ultrasound to diagnose. Uh, similarly, you know, enthesitis um, and thesopathy is not always apparent on MRI because of the, you know, similar relaxation time between cortical bone and tendon. And so I really think that it just um, confirms that these are very complementary imaging modalities and should probably always be used together, ultrasound and MRI. Okay, well, thank you for um, for talking us through your study. Uh, it's extremely interesting, and I hope to see it in action in future. Oh, yes. Come anytime. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> All right. Many thanks. Chris Whitten is an associate professor in equine surgery, and his research interests include equine limb function, subchondral bone, and the epidemiology of equine limb injuries. He's senior author on a paper titled Role of Subchondral Bone Remodeling in Collapse of the Articular Surface of Thoroughbred Racehorses with Palmer Osteochondral Disease. This can also currently be found in the Early View section of the EVJ website. Hi Chris, you've joined us today to discuss your recent paper, which is currently published online in the Early, early View section of EVJ, on subchondral bone remodeling associated with Palmer Osteochondral Disease in racehorses. So could you start by telling us a little bit about the pathogenesis of this disease, uh, how it's characterised and why racehorses are so susceptible? Yes, Rhiannon. So racehorses um, subject their subchondral bone, particularly in joints like the fetlock and the carpus, to extreme loads repetitively over time. And that results in fatigue of the subchondral bone and which eventually they develop uh, microfractures, um, which can which accumulate and either are repaired by the um, subchondral bone remodeling, you know, generally during a rest period, or um, if if they're trained appropriately, may well be able to be repaired during 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 a training period. But generally, what we see in in racehorses is an accumulation of micro damage over time, and if that becomes focal and intense, then you get um, these palmar osteochondral disease lesions that occur at the palmar aspect of the fetlock um, in the distal metacarpus, and they're characterised by accumulations of microdamage, uh, focal subchondral bone resorption, sclerosis of the surrounding bone, and eventually you get collapse of the articular surface, which is an important um, point in the disease progression because once that articular surface collapses, you then get start to get articular carpus cartilage erosion, um, articular cartilage degeneration, um, and, the disease, and the disease becomes progressive from that point. So what were your particular objectives in this study? So we were interested in why this and how this subchondral bone collapse occur, occurs, because, um, you know, as we started looking at um, samples, we we, we uh, sort of extent or pro quite progressive osteochondral disease, you get this quite dramatic collapse of the articular surface. Um, and we were interested as to why that was happening because the articular cartilage is actually remains intact over the top. So you're not losing bone from the surface. It's not crumbling away and breaking away. It's actually collapsing in. So to do that, the bone, to, to the extent that you see, the bone, and has to be removed by something. And we've done previous work that shows that 
osteoclast activity is actually reduced in horses that are in, in race training. And so we're interested in what terms, the when it happens and how it happens, that this bone then gets re removed, because presumably the only way that you get that amount of bone removed is by osteoclastic activity. Um, and yet um, our observations in other, other horses have shown that osteoclastic activity is pretty reduced in horses in heavy training. So we thought if we get look at this in more detail, we might be able to understand why it's happening and how it's happening. So can you talk us through the study design um, and your inclusion criteria? It's a cross it was a cross-sectional study using um, fetlock joints from horses that died or were euthanized on Victorian metropolitan racetracks because we have a post-mortem program that um, all horses that die on metropolitan racetracks in Victoria have to be post-mortem at the University of Melbourne. Um, so we just collected joints from those horses as they came through the program. And how did you examine these joints? So uh, we used two methods, um, high-resolution res um, quantitative micro-CT, which allowed us to look at the joint surface in three dimensions and examine the extent of joint surface collapse. And then we used backscattered electron microscopy to look at the subchondral bone morphology and the osteoclastic um, resorption surfaces in um, great detail uh, um, in, in the areas underlying those um, areas of collapse. And what did you find? So the first thing we observed was that the where you've got collapse of the articular surface, it was in, we confirmed that it was in fact the articular surface collapsing down into the subchondral bone because we could see on the backscattered electron microscopy that the uh, calcified cartilage layer was generally intact and just um, moved down into the subchondral bone. So you're not losing the articular surface, you're not having that fragmenting and, and um, going away into the joint, you're getting collapse of the surface into the underlying subchondral bone. And it can be quite dramatic. You can get quite um, marked displacement of the um, calcified cartilage down into the subchondral bone. Um, we also, uh, in the horses that we looked at, a very high proportion of them had some degree of articular surface collapse. Around about 60% of, of horses that we examined had some degree of collapse of the articular surface, um, which fits with the high prevalence of palmar osteochondral disease in racehorses. And in horses that are resting, did you find some differences to those uh, in training work? So um, we had a number, we had, I think, seven horses out of our 36 horses were, were um, at various periods of resting, rest at the time they died. Um, and we basically looked at those. The, the reason we looked at those was because we'd shown previously that horses in race training had very little osteoclastic activity um, in their subchondral bone. Um, we know that high, the high load environment inhibits osteoclastic activity, and we, we've seen that in, in racehorses in training. And yet, horses rest, and yet in resting horses, we can demonstrate that there's much more osteoclastic activity going on. So. What we wanted to have a look at was whether the, the difference in, in one was to confirm this difference in the osteoclastic activity and two, be, well, mainly because we were concerned that um, although 
for, for collapse to occur, you have to get quite a large volume of bone removed. And yet we didn't see any evidence of this in our horses that were in race training. And so by looking at the resting horses, we were able to confirm that um, that, that there's much more areas of eroded surface, which is the um, typical things that you see with when osteoclasts have been active, um, and greater porosity in the bone underlying the cartilage, um, again, due to, for that reason. And there seem to be two types of horses. There's the horse that has, that when they're resting, the horse that has sort of this, the evenly even spread of the porosity across the whole articular surface and there's some horses where it's quite concentrated and we where, where we see it quite concentrated those are the you can you can get areas of undermining of the subchondral bone and those are the horses that presumably are prone to articular surface collapse when they load that joint surface i must say the the pictures in the study um have beautiful high resolution, the SEM Im images, and it makes it much easier to picture what's going on inside the bone. So I definitely recommend yes. having a look at those pictures. So what yeah. do you conclude from this? Would you extrapolate um, advice for trainers in practice? So I think if our advice to trainers is, is if you suspect your horse has a subchondral bone injury, such as either by scintigraphy or a clinical um, a picture and a blocking pattern that fits with a subchondral bone injury. So the normal treatment has been to, to remove these horses from training because obviously it's the uh, repeated loading that's causing the problem. So, but if you're going to remove them from training, it's probably not a good idea to completely rest these horses because the, the lower the loading level of the bone is under, the greater the osteoclastic activity and you probably don't want to, although you need some of that to repair the injury, you don't want to create this undermining of the subchondral bone. And so our recommendation would be to remove the horse from training, but to continue um, training that horse at a lower level. So whether that be, you know, either on a water walker or um, some light training or, um, as Larry Bramlage has recommended, putting them out in a paddock where they can move around a bit more um, rather than confining them um, where you're going to maximise the um, osteoclastic activity. So it probably, it's sort of modified our recommendations, whereas we used to just say rest the horse and not give the trainer any, any idea of how to do that. Now we would say um, take it out of training, but, but let's try and um, give it some low level of exercise to prevent that. Um, very focal subchondral bone resorption that may well um, exacerbate the, the subchondral bone collapse. And do you have any plans for further investigation into this? Well, we're currently um, looking at how the subchondral bone is loaded and the effects of different um, bone morphology. So whether you've got porous bone or um, dense bone on, on how it's loaded. And so um, we're trying to understand the effects of this changes that we see in morphology from the training and resting horses um, on how load is transferred through the subchondral bone so that we can understand better um, how, how to manage horses to maintain the strength of the subchondral bone. Um, so that's that, that's the our current area of research. And I think 
if we can understand how bone is loaded and, and, and what sort of morphology is the ideal, then perhaps we can um, look at ways of um, managing horses to ma maintain that sort of bone architecture so that we're not um, exacerbating the problem. Okay, Chris. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Well, that concludes today's podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again for December's edition.